Hi, this is Ruth Friedman, and I serve as the Maharat at Ohev Shalom, the National Synagogue in Washington, D.C. And welcome back to my weekly Parsha podcast, Life Imitates Torah. And I'm very excited that we are again starting the cycle of the Parshiot, and we are back to Bereshit, to Genesis, a Parsha that totally does not get enough attention and time that it deserves. I know we all just finished Yantiv and we're exhausted. And is anyone really excited to go back to Shul this Shabbos? And yet we have this absolutely incredible rich Parsha that really contains so much of the beginning of the development of human morality, not even Jewish morality, just human morality. And so I wanted to, to look at the story of Kind and Hevel that occurs within this Parsha. And think about it in terms of, as a story of sin, crime, sin, victimhood, and then perhaps even tshuva. And by the way, because it's a very, very complex story um, and has a whole lot, a tremendous amount of nuance going on in every single verse, there is a sheer available, if you just search um, Apple Podcasts or whatever you use, if you just search um, Rav Hanoch Waxman and Kind and Hevel, um, there's like an hour-long sheer that you can listen to on structure, parallel, and drama, and he goes through the story from three different perspectives. And I would strongly recommend that if you want to get more of a textual analysis of all the different words and the different ways of understanding the story. What I wanted to consider today, because we have not nearly as much time as one hour, is just the perspective of what exactly did Kain do? Did Kain do something wrong? And if so, what was it? And how does God understand it? So, by the way, also, this occurs, this is um, in chapter four of Brayshit. Now, if you ask any adult who learned the story as a child, or for that matter, any child right now who has learned a story, they would say that what happened is that Hevel, Cain's younger brother, brought a better offering to God than Cain brought. And so Cain got angry and then just killed Havel for that because he was jealous or he was upset that he didn't get that same attention. Right, that's how we teach it. And that's, by the way, how many of the rabbis understand it. Cain um, brings just an offering that is from pre Adama. right? He works the ground, so he brings something from the fruits of the ground. Hevel, on the other hand, hevi gam hu mi bechorot, so no, from the, the choicest of the firstlings, right, the firstborn of his flock, which implies perhaps that Hevel brought something better than Cain, which is why God paid heed to, to Hevel, God accepted Hevel's offering, but not Cain's. So that could certainly be a way that we understand that therefore there was something that upset Cain, which is why... Hashem then appears to Cain and says, hey, why are you upset? Obviously, Hashem knows that Cain is upset. God knows why Cain is upset. But God says, okay, but, you know, by the way, why are you upset? If you do the right thing, you'll be uplifted. But if you don't, sin's waiting right there for you at the door. And it's urges towards you, but you can be its master. So it's sort of like maybe God here is perhaps giving Cain a warning and saying, Cain, I can say, I know you're upset. You've got two options. You can make the good choice or you can make the bad choice. And then in the next pasuk, Cain kills Hevel. So it seems like Cain makes the bad choice. He is drawn to sin. And so he kills his brother. Now, that's the way to understand it as a story of sin specifically. but. We also have to pay attention to some of the nuances here. 
The first way that we can read Cain as being a bit more favorable is that going back to the offerings, yes, Hevel brought from the Bechorot of the offerings, which perhaps Cain didn't do, though it's not totally clear. But also, Cain brought the offering first. Cain set the example. I am the oldest of three siblings, and I know how hard it is to be the first, and that often the younger ones can kind of take for granted what the things you had to figure out for yourself the hard way, right? So Cain brings an offering, and then Hevel, his younger brother, brings perhaps a better one, and that one gets listened to. That is like infuriating um, and perhaps a little bit unfair, right? There should be some patience with the fact that at least Cain had the idea to bring an offering to God in the first place, which is itself a very big deal, right? If Cain, if we think of Cain as setting the model for bringing offerings to God at all, that's an important thing that we need to credit Cain with. And also what some other rabbis point out, the debate over the morality of the story is just vast. So what many scholars and rabbis point out is, okay, Cain killed Hevel, but Cain didn't know that murder, murder was never, it, no one ever said you can't kill yet. Now you could argue maybe it should be obvious you can't kill Hevel, but yet there's no model for what to do when someone upsets you. There's nothing that is legal or, or illegal at this point. There's no reason to assume that Cain would know that murder is illegal, that you can't murder, and also just that there's no model yet of what to do when you get upset when things happen. And I think we all know that certainly we see with children, but I think even within ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, there are times when someone can do something that makes us feel so bad about ourselves or so angry that all we want to do is just strangle that person. And I think we even use that as a phrase, like, I'm going to kill you, or I could, I just want to strangle that person, right? That is, we have to acknowledge that those phrases exist because that urge exists within us. And if, we, and then we have to, I think, spend really our lives learning how to control those urges. But Cain and Hevel are two of four people on the planet at this point. And what, we're going to judge Cain so harshly, it should have been so obvious to him that you can't do that. That's a very harsh lesson for Cain to learn for humankind and then suffer for. Now, continuing on in the story, it does seem like God is certainly angry that Cain has killed Hevel. Because when God says, hey, where's your brother Hevel? Cain says, I don't know. And then the famous line, Hashomer achianochi, right? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's protector? Do I have to know where he is? And then God cries, well, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me for the ground, from the ground, excuse me. And then God curses Cain and says, you're going to be more cursed than the ground. Um, if you work the land, it's not going to grow for you. It's not going to actually respond to you. The curse of Adam was that you have to work the land. The curse of Cain is even when you work the land, it's not actually going to get you anywhere. And so God says, you're just going to have to wander around the earth. Now, Cain responds by saying, oh my gosh, this is way too much for me to handle. And anyone who's, is, who sees me is just going to kill me because I'm going to be wandering around. So this raises another big question within the rabbis of, is this the ultimate punishment for Cain? Right, God could have just said, okay, Cain, you killed Hevel, now we're going to kill you, which is technically the punishment for committing murder in the Torah, is then you get killed. 
Is the ultimate punishment not the kind be killed, that he wander around forever, that he not be able to dominate the soil, that he not be able to have any place where he settles down? Is that the ultimate punishment? And also, what does Cain's response to God mean exactly when he says, my punishment is too great to bear? Is Cain saying, my I, sin was too great to bear, right? I mean, well, the way I'm quoting it is just a translation. The actual Hebrew is very complicated. And there's a different piece on the Torah.com that outlines the, it charts actually, the eight different ways this line could be understood. Gadol avoni means so. My punishment is too great to bear. My punishment is too great. I can't bear it. Oh, so many different ways of understanding it. Is this an admission of guilt? Is this saying this is my ultimate punishment? Is he doing tshuva here? So many different ways to understand this line. And I think that the most confusing part of this story is when God responds and says, oh, you're worried that if you're wandering around and someone's going to kill you, right? He's vulnerable. He has gotten kind, has no, no anchor. And so he's a vulnerable person. And so God says, don't worry. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to promise that if anyone kills Cain, I'm going to go after them sevenfold. Whatever they do to Cain, I'm going to take vengeance on them sevenfold, seven times worse. So basically, Cain has this existence where he's wandering around, and yet God is going to make sure that Cain can't actually be killed. Think of the total paradox of this story. There's a crime, a sin, and then a punishment. Except maybe it isn't a sin. And maybe this isn't a punishment. Maybe this is actually a negating of the punishment, a withdrawing of the punishment, a compromising of the punishment to keep Cain alive. Or maybe it's the ultimate punishment because he has to wander around and suffer the feeling and the humiliation and all of that. It's it's such a morally complicated story and far more than we can really explore together. I'm just sort of giving snippets of it to help guide the reading of the story that we really if you're honest with it, there's so many different ways to read this story and think about, all right, what is actually the message here? What happened? Did Cain sin by killing his brother? If so, is it fair to punish him for killing his brother when maybe he didn't know better? There was no one regulating morality. There was no one teaching him anything. And does he do tshuva or does he double down? And does God forgive him or does God punish him forever? And if so, and if God is punishing him forever, why is God making sure that no one ever kills him? Now, I think that this debate really comes to a head in um, Pasuk Tetvav in 15, when God says, okay, don't worry. Whoever kills Cain, sevenfold vengeance will be taken on them. And also what happens next? By Yasim Hashem Lekain Ot. The Vilti Hakototo Komotso. God put an oat, a sign, a mark on Cain, lest anyone who met him should kill him. So God first says, okay, don't worry. I will make sure whoever kills Cain, they meet it much worse. But then also puts a sign on him so that people know that they can't actually kill him. What is a sign? What is an oath? Well, for this, we turn to the Breshi Rabbah, to the Midrash, which offers a whole array of possible interpretations. So there's a debate between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Nechemia. And Rabbi Yehuda says, ah, he's re'achlo galgal chama. What did God do for Cain? He put like a sun, basically, above Cain's head. So everywhere Cain walked, there was a sun above his head. And people knew 
All right, that's a sign that this guy, he has to be protected. And why does he have to be protected? I think a lot of the implicit understanding here is because he did tshuva, right? Here's a guy who did something good. The sun or light highlights something good. And so he did something good. So here, you may not hurt this man. Then Rabbi Nechami responds and says, Are you kidding me? For a Russia, for a wicked guy, God would put a, you know, a sun above their heads? Nope. Therefore, it teaches us that what did God do? God gave kind Sarat, right? Kain is going to walk around with eternal Sarat, with an eternal skin disease. That literally a person who has it, as we learn later in the Torah, has to shout, you know, stay away from me. Tamet, tamet, right? Stay away from me. I'm alone. I'm isolated forever. So Rabbi Nehemiah can't stomach the idea that Kain would have been forgiven, that Kain would be an ultimate symbol of tshuva. And it says, said, no, he has to be essentially an ultimate symbol of sin, that he is Sarah and that this is something that stains him forever. Much more, many more interesting interpretations come up. Brava Mark Helev Masarlo, that God gave him a dog, um, ostensibly, I guess, to protect Kain, perhaps to offer companionship, to fight off anyone who might try to come kill him. Um, Abba Yosef ben Kesari, Amar Karen Hitzmiachlo, that he grew some kind of a horn. Um, it's really interesting to see that the way that the rabbis offer different interpretations of what did life look like for Kain wandering around the earth for the rest of his life, unable to settle down? Did he look like a pariah, like someone who was a source of impurity who people had to stay away with? Or did he look like someone majestic, someone with a guard dog, someone with the sun shining above his head? And I think that the complexity of this Midrash and sort of the oddity of this Midrash really touches on those very questions that we addressed from the text itself. Is Cain a sinner or is Cain someone who does tshuva? Is Cain a sinner who shows that once someone sins, it's irreversible and they're stained with that forever? Or is Cain an example of someone who can commit the worst sin a human can commit and can then say, oh, my sin like was so severe that nothing, there is no punishment that could bear that. And in that moment recognizes his sin and therefore God says, okay, be, yes, you sin, there has to be some punishment, but also I'm going to protect you. And not just I'm going to protect you, but you're going to have this glowing light above you or this guard dog to protect you to signify to everybody that you are the fierce first human being on this earth who ever did tshuva. And that last point is highlighted in the next Midrash in the Breshi Rabbah that imagines that what happened? Cain left from God and began, he had to leave and go walk. And then he runs into Adam Harishon, his father. And his father asks him, Man asa what happened to your judgment? Like what, what's the psaac, right? What, what, what did God say? Amarlo, Cain said to him, Asiti tshuva benit pasharti. I did tshuva. So Adam Arishon, he starts to, you know, like be covering his face. And Adam says, that is the power of tshuva. And I didn't even know it. And this Midrash, I think is amazing because it takes Kain and it says, he is not the ultimate source of sin. He is the source of tshuva. 
And that what Adam Arishon represents, the first, the story of the first sin ever in the Torah represents a sin that doesn't have tshuva, a sin that cannot be for, corrected. There's no model of correcting that. But the model, what kind, the next step of humanity that next generation brings us is that sin, sin still exists, but it's the power of tshuva that you can repent from it. That, you know, each generation gets us closer to a moral, a, a moral clarity, a sense of an ideal moral. And I think that this is a really important message that emerges from this Midrash. The first generation of humans who ever existed were capable of committing sin, but no framework for tshuva. The next generation commits a sin that's even worse, murder. But that is when tshuva is introduced. And that is when we begin as humans to understand that the goal is not to exist in a sin-free world. It's to exist in a world in which people are capable of doing tshuva, but not just that people are capable of doing tshuva. People are proud of doing tshuva. Just like Kain can walk around with the sun shining over his head that says, hey, here's a guy who did something bad, but he did tshuva. That's really what we're striving for. And I think that this is a beautiful intention for us to carry with us into the new year. Now that we've left the season of tshuva, we move forward and to remember that we should be proud of everything we've done until now and shouldn't just bury this and just try to, to move ahead without bringing that past in, but to really be proud of everything we've accomplished this past month and take that with us into the new year and the new cycle of the Torah. Shabbat Shalom.